Welcome to Business Lines State of the Economy podcast where you'll find insight analysis and the story behind the numbers. Hi all, welcome to Business Lines State of Economy podcast. I'm Amiti Sen. The World Trade Organization's 13th ministerial conference is just around the corner. It is scheduled between February 26th and 29th in Abu Dhabi, UAE. Ministerials, as many of us know, are significant as they are the topmost decision-making body of the WTO. Our decisions on all trade-related issues are taken here, and it is represented by the trade ministers of all uh, member countries. They happen at an interval of two years mostly and are basically the focus of all attention because uh, so many important decisions are taken here. So much of the preparations, of course, happen beforehand in multiple committees of the WTO in the run-up to the ministerials, while some last-mile tough decisions are left for the ministers. So what are the important issues for India and other developing nations at the forthcoming MC13? I have with me today a very special guest, an expert on WTO matters, who has been following developments on the multilateral trade front for decades, Ranja Sengupta. Ranja works as a senior researcher for the Third World Network, which is an independent, non-profit international network of organizations and individuals involved in issues relating to development, developing countries and North-South affairs. Welcome, Ranja. Thank you, Amiti. Good to be here. Uh, thanks, thanks. Thanks for accepting our invitation. Uh, so, uh, Ranja, to begin with, uh, could you briefly give us an idea of uh, all the important issues on the table at the MC13 from India's and other developing countries' perspective? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, for India and of course, for other developing countries, you know, agriculture has been a critical issue and right from the beginning of the formation of the WTO, in fact. And uh, for, for India and the other uh, developing countries, such as, you know, we have the G33 group of countries, we have the African group, the uh, African Caribbean Pacific group. So for all of them, one critical issue that's been coming up in agriculture since, in fact, 2012 is the public stockholding issue. So in in the Bali ministerial, we had got an interim solution to allow developing countries to subsidize farmers when they, you know, buy food grains from them for the public procurement system. So, for example, India has the public distribution system, the PDS, and it pays the MSP to farmers to procure. But that involves a subsidy. And this subsidy is seen to be trade distorting in the WTO's eyes. And so developing countries had been asking that this should be given, they should be allowed to give this without limit. And this battle is on since 2012. In the 2013 Bali ministerial, there was an interim decision, but countries were promised, you know, it was mandated that by 2017, they'll get a permanent solution. So India and all these other countries, 80 uh, developing countries and LDCs have submitted a joint proposal in 2022. But this is the big one for them. It's a very critical issue, the permanent solution on public stockholding. Then in addition, of course, for all these countries and India issues in agriculture, like the special safeguard mechanism, then even cotton subsidies, for example, you know, huge cotton subsidies given by the US, which has really distorted cotton markets and export opportunities for you know, very small African countries, even for India in the global market. So cotton is a big issue. And of course, domestic support, which was like about developed countries disciplining their very high agricultural subsidies. Uh, so these issues are on the table so far, though, from what it looks like, it it's very dismal. Developing countries may not get an outcome, but they are definitely fighting for this. 
Fishery subsidies agreement remains a big one, of course, for India and many other developing countries who are fishing countries. You know, they are being asked to cut, cut subsidies and they are negotiating hard to also get special and differential treatment, which is their right. And then, of course, issues, you know, which are cross-cutting issues uh, related to WTO reform, related to dispute settlement. These are the, you know, about the whole functioning of the WTO, the future of the WTO. India has taken good positions. Uh, developing countries are trying to get their positions, uh, you know, kind of registered and on the table. Uh, but that's also a tough battle. Then, uh, the, you know, the TRIPS waiver which uh, India fought hard for uh, during the last ministerial. The extension is due, but that issue seems almost, uh, it's like concluded almost. Nothing really is happening. And then also the joint statement initiatives, you know, these plurilateral agreements are kind of being negotiated in many areas, e-commerce, investment facilitation, uh, domestic regulation and services. India has a defensive position on this. India really believes in the multilateral system and not in plurilaterals. But there's major pressure on India and other developing countries to sign on to these. So we will see how all that play out in the in MC13. Right. So um, let us just, uh, you know, focus on a few of these issues one by one. So uh, as you mentioned, uh, at the Bali Ministerial, we did manage to get a peace clause, you know, which insulates developing countries uh, like India against legal action in case the subsidies breach the uh, 10% limit. So mm -hmm. why is it important for India to have a permanent solution for public stockholding now when there is already a peace clause in place? So if there are no legal, there is no legal action that can be taken, then we why can't we just forget it? Yeah, the, that, that question, in fact, you know, has been asked by many. But what we knew right from the beginning when this peace clause, this Bali decision was reached in 2013, is that it it is not going to give full soundproof solution to the issue. Because firstly, it is limited to programs which are up to 2013. So if a country or even India introduce a new food, you know, public stockholding program after 2013, that will not be covered by the peace clause. I mean, they can have a program, but if they breach that subsidy limit of, you know, 10%, as you said, which is the limit allowed to developing countries, 10% of the value of production, then they do not have access to this peace clause. The peace clause is all 13. You are saying it is 2013. So anything 2013. that comes after 2013 will not be included. Will not be covered. And then okay. it's limited to traditional staples. Now, what are traditional staples for India? For example, pulses is a very important, uh, you know, food product. Is that a traditional staple? Some things are covered. Many things are not covered. And then the the a big problem is the notification. It has very onerous notifications. You have to give a lot of details about your program. And the problem is that there are also these safeguard clauses. Of course, it is to ensure that your program does not, you know, kind of hurt the interest of other countries. So you are not, it's not supposed to be trade distorting or it's not supposed to adversely affect food security of other countries. These are the safeguard conditions, but these are very ambiguous. These are kind of vague. These are not specific. Like, what does it mean? Does it mean that you cannot export out of the stocks or how exactly will you distort trade of others? How exactly are you adversely impacting food security of others? So because these are so kind of vague and ambiguous, it's also difficult for any country, not only India, to ensure that they meet it, right? So, uh, so, so, and because of these conditions, so suppose you give all the data, all the notification, India has actually invoked this clause three times. 
And then after giving all the data to the member states, you may still be told that, no, you are not meeting the safeguard conditions. And so that same information could actually be used against you. So you can you are protected by the peace clause only if you meet all these conditions. Now, nobody knows how exactly a country will meet and therefore you can always be challenged. And India has been asked, like India has been questioned each time it has tried to invoke the peace clause. It's still being asked questions. And so therefore the implication is that if other countries or suppose the dispute body, I mean, if they find you haven't met these conditions, you can always be taken to dispute. So no country, no country, including India, is fully protected by the peace clause. Therefore, they do need the permanent solution. And also for countries who are trying to put in new programs, you know, and bring in other food products under the purview of the peace clause, it, the permanent solution is critical for them as well. Right. So this three times that India has invoked it, it is uh, like all three times it is for rice, right? Right. Yeah. And and we have been questioned like mercilessly in all these uh, committee of agriculture meetings till now. Right. So, so what you're saying that is that, you know, till we have a permanent solution, uh, you know, totally ingrained in the agreement on agriculture, there is always possibility of trouble and maybe also legal action in some way or the other. Yes, I mean, India is largely covered, but the fact mm -hmm. is that because these loopholes and in a way these vagueness is there in the peace clause, uh, mm -hmm. India and no country is kind of uh, can be fully assured and they do mm -hmm. not actually have the full policy flexibility just right. through the peace clause. They need right. more. And they need also, Amiti, the permanent solution to be mm -hmm. better. You know, they need uh, easier terms for notification. They need safeguards which are rational. So they and they need it to be, you know, extended to all products, which normally their public stockholding programs cover. You know, why should it be limited to a certain uh, few products? And why should the WTO kind of tell you the membership decide what are your traditional staples and so on? So mm -hmm. uh, basically, the permanent solution needs to improve. It really needs to actually provide an effective and usable policy tool for developing countries. Right, right, right. And uh, what about uh, these other two agri? pillars uh, like uh, this pillar of, of domestic support and market access you know i believe that in domestic support already developed countries have have uh, you know the right to give a lot of uh, support in the form of these agri ams so right. what should india be watching out for here because uh, you know because going by uh, you know how things have uh, progressed in these uh, committee of agriculture meetings so far there is a lot of noise in these two areas as well and we could expect, you know, developed countries especially wanting, you know, something from these two pillars in the final declaration. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're very right. So, of course, domestic support has been the big issue, right? Uh, from Right from 1995. And that's because the Western countries have managed, not only have they not cut to, you know, what they were supposed to, they have managed to get uh, in the AOA huge concessions for themselves. The first thing they get is this extra AMS entitlements. They have these, you know, fixed entitlements, like the US has 19 billion US dollars. Fixed entitlements, not even I mean, so they can put all of it in one product, say dairy. So they can even concentrate it in, in you know, in specific products. And they, this 
whereas most developing countries do not have these extra AMS entitlements. So this is one of the most unfair and inequitable elements in the domestic support pillar. So India and other developing countries, African group, for example, have been you know, fighting long that these subsidies should be disciplined. In fact, developing countries joined the AOA, some say, and they agreed to include agriculture in the WTO agreements because they were told that, yes, these Western subsidies could be then disciplined through the AOA. But, you know, the AOA has been there for so long and we see that it has really inequitable rules and it has not managed to discipline. The Western countries have not cut their subsidies. On the other hand, they are pointing fingers at developing countries for, you know, supporting farmers through MSP and administered price support and so on. So while these proposals from developing countries have for long been on the table that AMS should be disciplined, even green box subsidies, if they are being used in a trade distorting manner, that should be disciplined. The African group, the, they have tabled proposals saying blue box subsidies, which are supposed to be not trade distorting, decoupled from production, but they are actually. So those should be disciplined. But now we see that especially the Keynes group, which is a group of agriculture exporters, and unfortunately it has many leading developing countries also in it, which are major agricultural exporters themselves. And they have tabled a kind of proposal which actually is very problematic because they are saying that all domestic subsidies should be clubbed together and be cut by 50%. And they are including, you know, the development box subsidies, which are special preferential kind of box for developing countries to help to support their agriculture development. These were key principles and promises, you know, of the WTO agreements. So they are being asked to cut even the de minimis, like the 10%, you know, that they are allowed, which we talked about just now. So all these things should be included and cut together. And they are saying even the PSH should be linked to that. Like whatever is your final kind of entitlement, your PSH uh, provision should come under that, whereas PSH has a completely separate and a very specific mandate, right? So on domestic support, the whole debate is being turned around in a way that it'll that developing countries will now have to take on more obligations rather than the the developed countries who actually you know give very high subsidies. And the thing is, so the developing countries, India has tabled a proposal, African group, they are saying no, it should be first the AMS entire. The green box, the really unfair and trade distorting elements. But this, you know, this whole debate has been really turned around and it has actually been problematic. And the other area which you mentioned is market access. Few countries, especially US and all and the Keynes group, they are pushing for it uh, very hard. They are also trying to, U, uh, US, for example, you know, in cotton, they're saying, oh, if we have to reduce domestic support, we must get market access. This really targets India's uh, import duties on cotton. So basically, and th there is no linkage, but they are always trying to link now market access with other issues. So if you want something in domestic support, you will have to give market access. If you want a special safeguard mechanism, you'll have to give market access. So this very unfair linkages are also being made in a way to, you know, twist this whole debate. And all these things we have to really watch out for in MC13. Right. So uh, India and other developing countries, they have to really uh, protect their interests and also see that the agreement does not get you know more distorted and 
you know more uh, skewed in favor of developed nations exactly yes right. so um, so uh, you know fisheries subsidies is uh, basically being seen as one of the you know low hanging fruits for mc13 because a lot of work i guess has already taken place in in these working committees at the wto so uh, what do you think is going to happen there and since you know india has a large number of you know sustainable poor fishers to protect what does it have to again watch out for and what is it at stake for the country yeah you know the first part of the agreement was already signed in 2022 which covers iuu fishing and overfished stocks and over there we do not have developing countries actually have a very bad deal they have very limited special and differential treatment only for 2 years exemption and they have very onerous notification conditions but now what we are uh, discussing and negotiating is the major chunk this is the overcapacity and overfishing kind of subsidies these are very important for india and developing countries because these are general subsidies these are about subsidies for infrastructure which can facilitate the growth of the sector so in our countries fisheries is critical as you said and so this part remains very very important for us so what the objective of the agreement is firstly to discipline those responsible you know for example the big subsidizers the industrial fishing countries like the developed countries uh, mainly developed countries who do this but also one or two big developing countries but now what we are seeing goes nowhere near disciplining those who are actually responsible but i think for the biggest challenge for india and many other developing countries is the part b of the uh, of these negotiations which is about special and differential treatment i mean they were promised even sdg 14.6 mandate you know which is the driving force behind these current negotiations it says that effective and appropriate special and differential treatment shall be an integral part but we are seeing right from the beginning even before the 2022 ministerial that there's massive pressure to minimize special and differential treatment and one critical element in the special and differential treatment is the exemption for small fishers and at the moment it's really limited what they are discussing is small fishers only if they fish within 12 or 24 nautical miles their subsidy is exempted but not uh, others and we have spoken to you know many small fishers groups we are working with them in india and global fishers groups they definitely go beyond 24 nautical miles they go even beyond 100 nautical miles sometimes they don't even know that you know they are crossing could you just elaborate for our listeners you know what the significance of these distances you are talking about this 12 nautical miles 24 nautical miles whole concept of you know eezs Yeah so uh, basically for every country in your in, around the coast this the the 12 nautical miles and sometimes the 24 nautical miles is supposed to be your just attached to the coastline right but beyond that uh, the up to the e, there's this this area which is called the exclusive economic zone and that is uh, 100 or 200 nautical miles and that is supposed to be under the jurisdiction of the countries okay so the un convention on law of the seas unclos actually says that countries have full jurisdiction and therefore full policy flexibility up to the eez but now we are seeing that countries rights to give subsidy up to eez 
is being curtailed. So as I was saying, you know, there's this clause that for small fishers, subsidies are not fully allowed or, you know, they are not exempt up to the EEZ, which is what India and other developing countries have been asking for. But they are limiting it to 12 or 24 nautical miles. So uh, that is a problem because, as I said, small fishers definitely go beyond that, those waters. And does it mean that they do not get any subsidies? And we have, according to Indian government, 4 million small fishers and then 9 million, according to the FAO, 9 million fishers actually in India. So this is a critical uh, clause for India to defend. India has been saying that it wants full exemption up to EEZ for small fishers. And the other, other issue is also a broad uh, exemption for developing countries. How many years? So the what is being discussed that, that it should be limited, seven years, nine years, this whole wrangling is going on. But actually, India had uh, sometimes suggested it should be permanent. Many developing countries such as Indonesia and others said that it should be permanent exemption up to the EEZ. Or even if it's a kind of, you know, time uh, uh, limited, it's for a limited period. Uh, India and other developing countries, India had asked for 25 years initially. So we are yet to see where that lands and that will be critical. Now, here, there's been also this divide and rule policy, which we saw even in 2022, that countries whose share is less than 0.8% of global marine capture, basically small fishing countries, they are exempt. Now, because the interest now has been divided, these countries, many countries are feeling okay that they are protected and therefore they are not fighting strongly for a very strong and broad special and differential treatment for all developing countries. And LDCs are also going to be exempt. But the thing is that LDCs will not remain LDCs forever. And those who are below 0.8, if they grow beyond that point, they will lose that exemption. So therefore, it is in the interest of all developing countries and LDCs to ensure full exemption for small fishers and also a broad exemption for all developing countries. But that we are yet to see. This is a big, big, very difficult fight. And we don't know, but for India, it would be critical to get full exemption for small fishers to protect its, you know, like large fisheries population and also to get as broad a, an exemption for itself as possible and to maximize the period that, you know, the transition period that it can get because it needs to put in a lot of mechanisms, monitoring mechanisms, uh, many other mechanisms in place to be actually, you know, be in a comfortable situation. Right. So uh, the challenge for India is to keep all the developing countries as well as the LDCs together to, you know, together fight for uh, their common interests. Absolutely. The alliance is critical and India really mm -hmm. needs to work with other developing countries and LDCs on this. Right. Right. And Ranja, uh, you know, also there is a lot of effort being put in, especially in developed by developed nations in Geneva at the moment to get the moratorium on e-commerce duties extended by right. another two right. years. So could you just briefly tell us what this moratorium is all about and why has India been agreeing to extend it? Like why it has been extending it for so long? And will things be different this time? And could this be used as a bargaining chip by India to get something else? Yeah, basically this is on, you know, the online download of books, basically online products uh, and services that are kind of downloadable. So that comes through the digital kind of pathway. Uh, and so uh, all the member states have agreed. So they agree every ministerial 
to not impose any duty on the movements of such you know products and services so that this is allowed to kind of flow freely now the thing is the main suppliers of this are developed country in developed countries right so the developing countries what they had got in exchange is the trips non violation complaints that they that nobody will kind of bring a case against them that they have not violated trips it's a very peculiar thing but these two every two years these two things have been basically traded against each other now the thing is i think india kept renewing and not only india uh, all other developing countries because they thought firstly that you know their own e-commerce it's not like it was big then so they did not have much to lose in terms of uh, developing their own you know e-commerce uh, products and services so they were allowing uh, free imports and also they were not i think aware of the massive the revenue loss because now there is this untad um, study and i forget the exact figure but it's in billions of dollars that developing countries are losing because of this moratorium you know and the thing is uh, the and also that their own digital economy is growing these products and services they need to grow domestically and therefore you may really need to rethink this policy and as you said you know that uh, it could also be used maybe as a bargaining chip because this we are giving almost for free because that trips non violation complaint that issue is not so serious here we are making actually a huge concession but the thing is that you know for the psh we've already paid through the trade facilitation agreement but we are probably we will have to pay again we will have to pay if we have to get anything on agriculture fisheries in other areas also so why would we give this for free i mean for for a few years there's been this discussion among developing countries that they really should not renew this moratorium and for example south africa has taken quite a strong stand that we will not renew this moratorium and india also had this position but last ministerial they somehow agreed at the last moment so now for mc 13 we really need to see and we hope that you know the government will Uh, understand the value of this both in terms of uh, you know like its strategic use but also in terms of the revenue loss also in terms of like a, a like as a policy very important policy tool to actually develop their own digital economy and these products and services within india so this could be a key issue and that could actually if it's used well by developing countries in india it's it could be of great value to them right uh fadil anjya could you tell us a little bit about these new issues that you know some countries again led by rich nations they are trying to bring into uh, the agenda such as gender and environment how big is the possibility of these getting incorporated um, in the wto um, mandated agenda right i mean we see that the for example the gender issue came in in 2017 and environment is actually being pushed quite a bit as a jsi but also as cross cutting and also you will see environment is coming in environment and language related to sustainability is coming specifically in i mean in specific areas like agriculture i work on agriculture a lot and you can see that always there's this mention of sustainable agriculture sustainable food systems and so these issues are definitely coming in and gender kind of this joint statement initiative and so on now the thing is that these issues are important right like nobody no country would say they are not committed to 
for example, gender equality or women's empowerment or environmental conservation and so on. The problem is how these are being brought into the trade arena by developed countries. The debate and the demands are being shaped in a way by developed countries, also labor and so on. We, we, you know, labor is kind of actually like an old issue that has been brought in by developed countries for we feel that it's being brought in in a way that imposes standards and conditions on developing countries. It will commercially benefit the business in developed countries, but it will cut our producers off, you know, from these, uh, from uh, kind of growth pathways. So this is the problem that it's not that developing countries do not want to commit to these issues, but the way they are being brought in, they are going to impose non-tariff barriers for them. They're going to make them uncompetitive. And of course, these issues, they have to be balanced with, you know, other interests. And the interesting thing is that, for example, on gender, I follow gender quite a bit and they want standalone chapters on gender but when you say that okay the trips agreement is actually harming and uh, you know making women's access to treatment much more costly and they already have unequal access why don't you revise the trips agreement or the aoa the agreement on agriculture that has really hurt you know small women farmers across developing countries because you have allowed subsidized products from the west to come and flood developing country markets and small women farmers small farmers are the most impacted but then when you talk about this what about the adverse impacts of wto agreements they are silent so it is that this debate will be let's be very clear it's really not about the environment or women's empowerment it is really about in the trade space and we know wto is a harsh commercial pace, right? Like it is for everybody's buying for commercial gains. And when these issues, which are issues that we are all committed to, but when these issues are brought in, being they are being brought in here in a very kind of uh, defective way, I would say. And then we have to be very cautious. And just because, for example, India is saying no, it doesn't mean India is not committed to these causes. But of course, we have to do a lot of work on these domestically. But it means that, the way that these are being in a way hijacked by developed countries for their commercial advantage, we should not be okay with that. So I don't think in MC13, there'll be big things, different, I mean, big outcomes happening on these issues. But the strategy is to incrementally push just to get a mandate to discuss, to then negotiate, just to kind of everybody sharing experience. And, you know, the, the, it, the way it goes is from one group it becomes that it's the whole group that's saying that or the whole WTO is saying that. So there is this effort to kind of incrementally formalize these issues in a very problematic uh, kind of framework. So that is what I think we, we would have to watch out for. And right. I hope India is not going to agree and without it's really kind of weighing the pros and cons. And, you know, the developing countries should set the narrative and the approach themselves, I mean, on these issues. Well, one can certainly hope that India and other developing countries will be able to protect their defensive interests and gain something out of the MC13. We could probably have another discussion on the matter after the meeting to analyze how things turned out. Thank you so much, Ranja, for making the complicated issues of the WTO quite lucid for our listeners. I, for one, I think I'm going to go back to it, listen to it several times before and during the MC13 to get my you know basics right on, on these important issues. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Amiti, for having me. I, I hope this would be useful. And yeah, we have both offensive interests and defensive interests and MC13 would be interesting for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.